Rachel. This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. Welcome. Whoa. Whoa. Doing it. 2022. Here we go. I mean, it's already been 2022 for our listeners, but for us, it's 2022. For us, it's 2022. And we're heading down under. Hey. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. I mean, you know, with a pandemic, we have to live our travel dreams any way we can. Vicariously through Disney (laughs) characters. This is the only way I get to Australia. That would be really sad. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, did you not go when you were studying in New Zealand? No, never made it across the seas. Oh, man. Yeah, so close. So far. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I could go back. Eventually, maybe. Uh, So this film, coming into it, I was thinking this is just something that we have to do before we get to (laughs) Beauty and the Beast. And I still feel that way. Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't expecting it to change your mind. It doesn't help that Beauty and the Beast is the next film and is probably your favorite close to the top, if not Mm -hmm. your favorite. So that, I mean, it's really hard (laughs) to just put this one in the way. (laughs) Yes. Will you start us with a synopsis, please? Yeah. So this is The Rescuers Down Under from 1990. So this has another really cool opening sequence, at least technologically, which I'm going to talk about a whole bunch Mm -hmm. but it opens with a close-up shot on a bug on a leaf and the camera slowly pans forward past more bugs and more leaves and plants each coming into and out of focus as we move which is pretty neat and new and then suddenly the blurry background comes into sharp focus depicting a gorgeous sunrise over a field of flowers and some rocky plateaus And the rescuers down under 80s action movie style title pops up. Mm -hmm. And then we pan forward across this field of flowers and rocks and trees. And like for a long time. Very long long time. Maybe maybe too long. (laughs) (laughs) That initial moment, though, is very thrilling. Mm -hmm. The music cues in, really swells, and it's exciting. Yeah, it's cool. And like you can tell that like, Something is happening here. I'm not sure that audiences fully noticed, but anyone who was paying attention to the like evolution of the technology of the film was like, oh, this is different. This is cool. Mm -hmm. But as we pan forward, we eventually reach the house of Cody, our main character who Mm -hmm. lives in the outback. Cody is awakened by the sound of a didgeridoo in the distance and rushes off to where a kangaroo tells him that Marahute, the great golden eagle, is caught in a poacher's net. Mm-hmm. Cody climbs an absurdly high <laughs> cliff. It's very, very high. Like just free climbing. Yep. Thousands of feet. He's like eight <laughs> years old. <laughs> Terrifying. Paul was out of his mind because Paul's afraid of heights. Oh, and like, obviously right. it's ridiculous, but he was like, no, no, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Even in animation, it's too much. It's too much. Uh, but Cody does make it to the top of this cliff and frees Marahute, leading to this really spectacular sequence where he flies on her back. And then she shows him her nest and her eggs and gives him one of her feathers. There were moments oh, yeah. in the eagle flight that felt like the precursor to the Soren attraction. Yes, I had that same thought. Yeah. <laughs> Cody later tries to free a mouse from a poacher's trap, but the mouse was actually bait and he falls into a large hole. The poacher Percival C. McLeish, McLeach, McLeach. Uh, and his sidekick Joanna, who is a goanna or an Australian monitor lizard, they find Cody and McLeach sees that Cody has Marahute's feather, so he knows that Cody must know where the eagle is. Uh, so McLeach kidnaps Cody in the hopes of using him to find Marahute's nest and throws Cody's backpack into a crocodile-infested river so that the rangers will think Cody is dead. 
dark. Sure. <laughs> the mouse Cody Freed then rushes off to start an elaborate system of telegrams that reaches the Rescue Aid Society asking for help to save Cody. It reminded me a little bit of the Twilight Bark in 101 oh, Dalmatians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, except with a really awful computer-generated arrow yes. <laughs> going over the <laughs> continents. The RAS assigns the job to its top agents, Bernard and Bianca, interrupting Bernard's attempt to propose to Bianca at a fancy dinner. They fly to Australia on Wilbur the Albatross, brother of Orville from the first movie, and meet their guide, a kangaroo mouse named Jake, who is basically the mouse version of Crocodile Dundee. (laughs) (laughs) They begin their search for Cody, and Jake constantly shows off his Outback experience while flirting with Bianca, which makes Bernard self-conscious and sad. (laughs) Also worth noting that there's a weird side story where Wilbur goes to a scary mouse hospital uh, because his spine was injured during the flight, Yeah, apparently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At McLeach's isolated hideout, Cody is in one of many cages holding captured animals, and they all work together to try to free themselves, but Joanna stops them. When Cody won't tell McLeach where Marahute is, McLeach tricks Cody into thinking another poacher killed her and her eggs are in danger, then lets Cody go in the hopes that he'll lead him to the eagle. McLeach follows Cody in his half-track, which Bernard, Bianca, and Jake stow away on. And, of course, Cody goes straight to the nest. Straight there. Not to his mom to be like, hey, mom, not dead. Not to the rangers for help. Mm -mm. Straight to the eagle's nest. Yep, and doesn't notice this giant vehicle that is probably not that far behind. (laughs) Of course, McLeach recaptures Cody and Marahute, Jake and Bianca, and sends Joanna to eat the eggs. But Bernard switches the eggs out for carved stones, which Joanna then pushes off the cliff. Wilbur arrives, and Bernard convinces him to sit on the eggs while he tracks down McLeach. By taming a wild razorback pig using a method he saw Jake use earlier on a snake. McLeach ties Cody up over the river before Crocodile Falls in order to get rid of that last loose end. But Bernard disables the half track and tricks Joanna into knocking into McLeach, sending them both into the river. Joanna escapes, but the crocodiles chase McLeach to the falls and he is washed over the edge, presumably to his death. The rope holding Cody breaks and he falls into the river, but Bernard manages to hang onto the rope long enough for Jake and Bianca to free Marahute, who plucks them both from the waterfall. Bernard then proposes to Bianca on the back of Marahute, and she says yes, and they fly off toward Cody's home. And then finally, in a like epilogue of sorts, we <laughs> cut to Wilbur, who is still sitting on Marahute's eggs, and they hatch underneath him. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end. Woof. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot is going on. It is a complicated plot. Eh, yeah. S- s- some of it makes sense. Some of it works, I think. <laughs> some of it works. I would argue the plot makes sense. I would say there are a lot of extraneous moments mm. that just slow down the pacing until it's interminable. And you're just like, yes. can we get back to some of the cool eagle flying sequences, please? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. McLeach is a pretty typical villain in like the stereotypical not great villain ways of like he talks a lot and <laughs> his plans aren't so foolproof and he monologue forever until he got caught kind of thing. So mm-hmm. his scenes are often very long. <laughs> yeah. Even in that scene where Cody's in a cage with all the animals, that dragged on forever. I mean, there was some comedic relief that was maybe entertaining, but it's like this could have been cut in half lengthwise. Yeah. I also really don't like Frank. <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, I know. We're going to talk about our memories of our past viewings, but like when Frank came on screen, I was like, oh, I remember you. I don't like you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll say more about that. Tell us how you remember this film, what your relationship was with it before this recent viewing. So I think I watched this one maybe 
two more times or something than I watched the original Rescuers. It was definitely more up my alley in the action adventure focus. The animals Mm -hmm. like was definitely something that appealed to me. But I didn't really remember a lot of the plot watching it now. I thought I was going to remember more than I did. Mm -hmm. It was just those like really flashy moments where like I remembered Marahute. I loved Marahute. The flight scenes like that was super vivid when I watched them again. And then like I remembered Frank. I remembered Joanna. Like weird bits that just kind of stuck in my brain. And I think overall I liked this one better in addition to the action adventure it was also just brighter. <laughs> like mm. we have talked about me literally being more drawn to brighter images mm-hmm. than darker images. in a lot of these films, like no matter how well made the film is, <laughs> if it is shot with brighter colors, I'm more into it. Mm. And I think that was genuinely part of it. I just thought it was pretty. <laughs> and certainly compared to the original rescuers, which is very dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but like gorgeous oil paintings, but mm-hmm. like, you know, Eight-year-old Aaron did not care about that. <laughs> what about you? What do you remember if if you watched this even? Yeah, I don't have very strong memories of this. I feel like I maybe watched it once at a friend's house, like mm, during yeah. a family party or something. You know, it was playing in, in the den and I happened to watch some or most of it. I don't have any memories of like sitting down and watching it at home. It was not a regular one in our household. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, did you like it? <laughs> no. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say if someone was interested in the origin of the CAPS system, which I know you'll mm. talk a lot about, and they wanted to see some really interesting and impressive animation sequences to Google clips on YouTube rather than subjecting <laughs> themselves to the entire film. Wow. Yeah, they can't even they can't even watch it for that purpose, huh? No. Just not uh, worth well, it. I mean you could, but yeah, it's not worth it. I enjoyed 10 minutes of that film that was an hour and 18 minutes long. Yeah, that's super fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I feel pretty similarly. I came into it with slightly higher hopes just because I knew I had positive-ish memories of it from when I was little. Mm-hmm. The technology is cool, but at the same time, it's like a little off-putting because mm. the they like haven't quite figured out the balance and the like details are so amazing on like Marahute and then kind of minimal on other things that mm-hmm. are way less important, but you can like sort of see the difference sometimes. It just isn't a style that appeals to me. Mm-hmm. And then like scary over the top poacher, not really my thing. The mm-hmm. animals are kind of cool, but eh, they don't really have a big role. It's too long. It's kind of boring. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, like if it, if I wasn't taking notes, I probably would have ended up on my phone at some point while mm-hmm. watching this. And that's never a very good indicator. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know <laughs> you don't have too much to tell us, but you got any extra background that we can go into? Right. Well, in the end credits, what it says about the source material is suggested by characters created by Marjorie Sharp. So Mm. the filmmakers make it very clear that this is an original story and really the only carryover from source material are those two primary characters, Miss Bianca and Bernard. Just as a refresher, Marjorie Sharp is the English novelist whose children's book created those two characters who inspired the 1977 film, The Rescuers. You can hear all about that in our episode on The Rescuers. Yeah. And you can go watch that movie. That one's a lot better if you ask Rachel and a bit better if you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So talk to us about the making of the film. Yeah, there was some really cool stuff that I found on this one, which, you know, makes it all a little bit better when you're like, well, the movie wasn't great, but here's some neat stuff that was going on. Mm -hmm. So shortly after production on Oliver and Company wrapped up, And Disney still had not yet had another critical or box office hit at that point. Someone got the idea to do a sequel to The Rescuers, 
And like I say someone because it is <laughs> it is not entirely clear who brought this idea forward. It just kind of materialized out of the ether. <laughs> no one wants to take ownership of this mistake. Maybe. <laughs> it's funny to me because The Rescuers was originally intended to be a sequel to 101 Dalmatians, right? It was intended to be another Cruella de Vil movie. And so yeah, now they're actually making a sequel of the thing that was originally intended to be a sequel. But did not include a cool villainess. Nope. <laughs> Sad. Alas. Alas. By the mid-1980s, the Rescuers had made over $41 million worldwide in box office rentals, and mm. Disney wanted to capitalize on that success and sure. the familiarity with the characters, so they wanted to create their first sequel. But also the live-action department was seeing a lot of success with sequels, so they were mm. like, oh, maybe we can do that too. This seemed like huh. a good opportunity. Very, like, Monster of the Week type thing, like, Bernard and Bianca can go on infinite little journeys. It's very simple. Sure. Katzenberg also wanted it to be the Disney animator's first action-adventure film, which was also a, a genre that was like a commercial hit in the 80s. I'm sorry, is this considered the first action-adventure? Like, is it The Rescuers an action-adventure movie? Nope. You see, there's there's a romance more in that, um. and I think, and there's, there's songs. There are songs, so it can't, it can't be action-adventure. Ah. Impossible. Right. Mm. It would be a trivia fact that this is the first action adventure film for Disney animated studios. Okay. And then, of course, in the last push to make this successful, they wanted to embrace America's sudden obsession with Australia <laughs> because everyone loved Australia after Crocodile Dundee came out in 1986. And it was like a two to three year span where there was a whole lot of Australia stuff happening. And then it kind of died out before this film could even be completed, which yep. is a problem we'll talk about later. Mike Gabriel and Hendel Batoy were assigned as co-directors and Thomas Schumacher was made producer. They traveled to Australia along with story artist Joe Ranft and animator Pihote Hunt. They went to do research. In addition to getting great footage and sketches of the landscape and animals, the team met with a number of First Nations peoples and they came mm. to the conclusion that the protagonist should be a First Nations boy. What? Yeah, I know. Get ready, girl. Here we go. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Buckling in. <laughs> so here's a quote from Mike Gabriel. He said, quote, we should watch the aboriginals. Also, these are his words, not my words, just saying. Mm -hmm. We should watch the aboriginals, and there are these little kids with blonde hair in the middle of the country, the beautiful faces on these little kids with this dark skin and this blonde hair. We thought this was going to be a really original animated character. Uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting entry point. Problematic, yeah. but okay. Some fetishization there mm -hmm. a little bit. Okay. And a lot of like visual thought process rather than other things of just like mm -hmm. how interesting the contrast would be <laughs> for mm -hmm. the hair and skin color. Right. They got back and they pitched this idea to Katzenberg. And there are two different reports on how he responded. Uh-huh. Mike Gabriel said he was gentle about it, suggesting that it, having a First Nations child as the lead would hurt the worldwide box office potential. Classic capitalistic white guy's opinion that uh -huh. I was the first thing I assumed. Yep. Another executive said instead that Katzenberg shouted, quote, nobody wants to see that little boy of color. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. And then insisted on yeah. casting, quote, a little white blonde kid instead. Mm-hmm. So the, the phrasism's all over this decision. Wow, yeah. This is really interesting because I feel like it's one of the first times we're actually getting some insight into the intent of the filmmakers in the yeah. character decision-making in a way that we really haven't so far. Yeah, it was cool to have a lot of these quotes. And also a lot of these people were still alive, are still alive. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more interviews and things that were done about issues like this because people cared in the early 2000s and whatnot right so gabriel and batoy were really disappointed gabriel said quote he cody 
lost his unique identity. He got blanded out a bit. He doesn't stand Mm. out. It would have been so cool. Another executive said, quote, nobody loved us delving into Aboriginal culture. Mm. And finally, Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise, who are apparently too loud in their protests against making the white kid the lead, were removed from the project entirely. Wow. So there was a lot done to really bury any connection to First Nations people mm-hmm. in this film. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. another piece of it, too, where the team also had the idea to animate a dream sequence in the style of First Nations cave paintings Hmm. where Bianca and Bernard would be running across a landscape and dodging animals, chasing them. Katzenberg also rejected this scene, but Hmm. interestingly, many years later, there would be a very similarly styled scene used with Egyptian hieroglyphics in DreamWorks' The Prince of Egypt, which Brenda Chapman directed and Katzenberg executive produced. Ha. I think there's something more palatable about Egyptian hieroglyphics in terms of the fact that it's ancient history versus the very real and present existence of First Nations people in Australia. Yeah. And the religious connections maybe making that easier to connecting it to Judaism and Christianity. Yeah. All right. So in addition to the research done in Australia, Glenn Keane studied eagles at the Peregrine Fund in Boise, Idaho. Hmm. The fictional golden eagle in the film, Marahute, ended up with so many details, including 200 individual feathers, that she was really complicated to animate and ended up only appearing for seven minutes in the film. (laughs) They're seven spectacular minutes, Mm -hmm. but it's only seven minutes. They also took trips to the San Diego Zoo to observe kangaroos, kookaburras, and snakes. On a casting note, obviously, Eva Gabor and Bob Newhart signed back onto the project to reprise their roles from the first film. But Jim Jordan, who voiced Orville, had passed away earlier that year. So John Candy was cast as the albatross Wilbur, Orville's brother. Wilbur and Orville are named after the Wright brothers, if people didn't catch that, which is pretty fun. <laughs> and then George C. Scott was cast based on his role as the general in Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the vibe that they wanted. All right, on to the technical stuff. Okay. Woo. The Rescuers Done Under is most notable, because it's not notable for too much else, uh, (laughs) for its use of the computer animation production system, or CAPS, to produce all the animation in the film. Mm -hmm. So CAPS was developed to modernize the ink and paint and xerography processes, making the process of hand painting or Xeroxing cells completely obsolete. The computer could easily color enclosed lines and spaces and had an unlimited and consistent color palette that they could pull from. Mm -hmm. It also allowed for easy blending and shading, adding shadows. Artists could simply scan their drawings into the computer and then they could color and layer various elements digitally. Hmm. made things way faster. This process also made the multiplane camera obsolete because they could achieve much more complicated camera angles and movements and multiplane effects digitally. Mm-hmm. And they could incorporate computer animated images created using the wireframe graphics method into the scanned in layers. So that's how they did like the flowers in the opening shot, hmm. McLeish's half track, is computer animated the perspective shots of Wilbur (laughs) flying through New York city and over Sydney that look (laughs) pretty awful. Yeah. Are also blocky and dark and whatnot because they're also the wireframe graphics. Mm -hmm. These digital files could then be recorded right onto film stock and off they go. Super easy. Mm -hmm. It's worth noting that many of the backgrounds in the film particularly depicting the landscapes, were still hand-painted and then scanned into the computer. Hmm. So everything is put together by the computer, animated by the computer, but there is still some stuff that was hand-painted and not Mm computer-painted. So history of the CAPS system itself. It began its development under the Lucasfilm Computer Graphics Group, 
which was sold to Steve Jobs and renamed Pixar in 1986. Mm-hmm. Pixar had been providing small moments of modern computer animation in films like The Wrath of Khan and various short films, but they were mostly focusing on their hardware division, producing graphics computers. Hmm. The animators at Disney could see the potential in Pixar's work to improve their own films, and Pete Schneider and Roy E. Disney were early supporters of investing in the technology. And they finally convinced Eisner, Katzenberg, and Wells that the initial $12 million estimate would be worth it. And they got to work. (laughs) (laughs) Initial $12 million. We will return to that. (laughs) Randy Cartwright, who had been an animator at Disney from 1975 to 1983 and was obsessed with computers, was hired back in 1986 as the artistic lead on the CAP system. And he was instrumental in creating and implementing the technology, teaching people how to use it. So he and the rest of the CAPS team went on to win a Scientific and Engineering Academy Award for their work in 1992. Oh, yeah. Thanks to CAPS, The Rescuers Down Under was the first animated film for which the entire final film elements were assembled and completed within a digital environment, Mm. as well as the first fully digital feature film. Okay. Another good piece of trivia. Yeah, you know, file that away. (laughs) On a practical side, caps would make labor much cheaper and post-production faster, but they did not see these benefits immediately because they were building the system as they made the movie. Mm. So many at Disney would go on to regret the way that they rushed into using the system. Mm. They basically decided that the rescuers down under would be 100% made on caps from the get go. Right. Like right when they decided to even make this film, they decided it would be on caps and they didn't give caps any sort of real trial run. They later wished they had made like a short film with it first to just like figure out how it worked and get all the kinks and whatnot. It ended up working really well, but Mm -hmm. it took a long time. They had to teach everybody all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The system itself ended up costing $30 million. Uh Uh-huh. Michael Eisner didn't like that. Yeah. He was very worried that it wasn't going to be worthwhile but again they Mm. fully committed to making the rescuers down under on it so right they finished it and they paid for it and just had to hope you know spoiler alert it was it's gonna be okay (laughs) yeah it's gonna be worth the 30 million and then some all right so that's it on caps a quick note that the score for the movie was composed and conducted by bruce broughton And again, as we mentioned before, there are no songs written for the movie, which is only the second Disney animated film to not have any songs, the first being The Black Cauldron. Mm. And we all know how well that went. (laughs) (laughs) The Rescuers Down Under came out on November 16th, 1990, as a double feature with the Mickey Mouse featurette, The Prince and the Pauper. Oh. It made $3.5 million on opening weekend, Ooh. which was way below the studio's expectations. And the poor performance may, at least in part, be due to the fact that Home Alone opened the same weekend and was yeah. an immediate blockbuster and appealed to the exact same audience mm-hmm. families that might have gone to see The Rescuers Down Under. And it's a much better movie, so... I mean, it's the greatest Christmas movie of all time, so... (laughs) So, yeah, that that definitely did not help their chances. By the end of the weekend, Katzenberg pulled all print, TV, and radio advertising for the movie. Yeah. Said it couldn't be justified. He apparently had a phone call with Mike Gabriel on, like, Sunday night, told Mike Gabriel it was over... Gabriel apparently broke down crying (laughs) on this call. He was so upset of all that work coming to nothing. And Katzenberg said they couldn't justify spending advertising money on a flop. Yeah. Just had to move on. Mm. The film ended up making 27.9 million in the U S and 47.4 million worldwide with a final budget of 38 million. That was not very good. Yeah. All right, reception-wise, unlike general audiences, critics actually praised the film overall. Mm-hmm. I think it's possibly because they were more likely to notice the technological advances mm-hmm. than like general audiences were. Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars. 
He loved the flight and the action sequences. But interestingly, he had one complaint. Uh-huh. Quote, there's one reservation I have about the movie. Why does the villain have to be so noticeably dark complexioned compared to all the other characters? Huh. Is Disney aware of the racially coded message it is sending? When I made that point to another critic, he argued that McLeach wasn't dark skinned. He was simply always seen in shadow. Those are shadows cast by insensitivity to negative racial stereotyping. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> the last bit. I was like, whoa. Okay, Roger. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't necessarily agree, but let's right. go. Let's get some actual critique happening. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's really interesting, especially because I did not read McLeach's racially coded at all. Like I read him as mm -hmm. a white person who was maybe tan from spending a lot of time outdoors. I think in two other places I saw mm -hmm. this come up. One person even saying that McLeach looked like he was a black man like the hmm. the complexion was so clearly changed hmm. so it made me wonder if they had changed the film cleaned up the lighting like done something to the original release so that what we're watching on disney plus currently maybe it doesn't look the same because hmm. i mean he looks he looks just like a white guy he is in shadow a lot of the time mm -hmm. he's a villain right so i don't know Gene Siskel also gave the film three out of four stars, saying the film was, quote, bold, rousing, but sometimes needlessly intense. Hmm. Janet Maslin walked the line between Ebert and Siskel's reactions, enjoying the action sequences and the animation, but calling it, quote, a trifle dark and uninvolving for very small children, hmm. end quote, and noting that it was slightly more grown-up, adventurous approach that might be the reason it does not include the expected musical interludes, but that they would have been welcome. I mean, agreed. In a moment of gentleness, that same phone call that I was talking about earlier between Katzenberg and Gabriel, Gabriel remembered Katzenberg's attitude when he pulled the advertising and said that the film might be dead. He also said that the movie was good and the technology was amazing and that they would take what they learned and do it better next time. Hmm. So as much as Katzenberg is a jerk, <laughs> he did seem to be just of the mindset like, we got this. This didn't work out. Let's just keep moving. We know that we can. Mm -hmm. And clearly they do. The next several movies are very, very good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what I got for you. Wow. Wonderful. All right, shall we hop into some themes? Let's hop in like Jake the mouse kangaroo. Kangaroo mouse, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference? Everyone knew what you meant. It's fine. <laughs> I just don't think a mouse kangaroo is a thing. <laughs> okay, well, our our first theme is misogyny and gender roles. Mm. Speaking of Jake, the kangaroo mouse, let's talk about depictions of masculinity. In 2004, Tobin and colleagues did a content analysis of Disney films looking at depictions of gender and race and sexuality. And they identified five themes that emerge related to what it means to be a boy or a man in Disney films. And they looked at everything from Snow White up until when they conducted this study in 2004. The first theme that they identified was that men are naturally strong and heroic. I feel like Jake embodies that, especially in his domination of the snake. Mm -hmm. Not only is he defending Bianca and Bernard against a snake's attack, he forces the snake into submission and Bernard then learns that. He does that exact same thing with the razorback pig later in the film. Mm -hmm. He's a big, strong, manly man. <laughs> Jake? Yes, Jake. Like, he's fearless. He's assertive. He's flirtatious. He's everything Bernard is not. And apparently that mm -hmm. makes Bernard feel lesser. It makes him uncomfortable. And he has to 
do things the way Jake does to feel better mm-hmm. about himself by the end of the film. And he yes. does do a lot of the saving, but you don't have to change Bernard. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Bernard slash Bob Newhart. You're endearing just the way you are. I wanted to mention two other small things about gender roles. The first one is just that with the mouse hospital, of course, all the (laughs) nurses are female and the doctor is male. Mm -hmm. And like that scene is weird and all over the place. (laughs) We have other things to talk about there potentially. But just in general, like the dichotomy nurse and doctor. They have no separate individual identities and they're all just acting entirely based on what the doctor tells them to do with no independent thought or agency. Yeah, another one of those scenes that the movie does not need and takes forever and I don't Mm -hmm. really understand its purpose except to let John Candy do some John Candy things. Yes. And then the other thing I want to mention is just a similar gender role dichotomy that we saw in the first Rescuers Mm -hmm. with Bianca and both Jake and Bernard, but with Bernard a lot of the time that, you know, she is helpless or like doesn't do things, doesn't take action on her own. She asks the men to take action instead and do Mm -hmm. something on her behalf. So there's that scene towards the beginning when Wilbur can't hear them over the music and they're trying to get his attention. And Bianca says, Bernard, do something like, right. You're both there. Like what's Bernard going to do that you can't do. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of, handing over the responsibility to the man. And then Bernard does like almost all the saving mm-hmm. throughout the whole film. But I think Bianca has less agency in this film than she did in the first. Well, and actually in the first, she saved Bernard a couple times. It was much more equal. Yes, she is just here to be flirted with, it seems like, in this film. It really did, yeah. To be flirted with and to calm Cody. Yeah, be that mothering role. Uh, So something that is maybe positive about Bianca and Bernard's relationship is the apparent time it takes to develop. And this may solely be the product of two films over which their relationship arc spans, But an article by Tanner and colleagues from 2003 noted that in most Disney films, quote, a common message was the notion that when a man and a woman meet, they almost always fall in love and quickly. So the rescuers down under upholds the falling in love part, but it's exceptional in that it does suggest that the relationship develops over a longer period of time. Who knows when the movies are supposed to be mm-hmm. timeline wise, but they're 13 years apart. Yeah. That's a long time to date and get to know each other. Right. You know? <laughs> Great job. <laughs> <laughs> I had one quick note on beauty standards. Oh, yeah. It was just like a silly thing. I feel like they did that. I was like, why? And had to write it down. <laughs> There's a point where Wilbur hits on three pink birds with Mm. blonde head feathers and blue eyes Mm. and i was like i don't know that that's even a real kind of bird (laughs) that you Mm -hmm. might find in australia maybe it is but seeing it immediately and the pinkness being like these are girls wilbur Mm -hmm. is hitting on women do not worry (laughs) but then also that they're kind of blonde and blue eyed and like Mm -hmm. even our bird women have to follow this western beauty standard that (laughs) has been set up (laughs) of course of course they do of course there's also a little bit of homophobia i think just two small moments that i noticed Mm. the first is that wilbur is very reluctant to sit on the eagle's eggs. Yes. Bernard has to really strongly encourage him. And my sense is that because that would be emasculating, right? Because only female birds sit on eggs. Yeah. There is a little bit of resolution to that with that epilogue scene that you mentioned where he responds positively to the eagles emerging from their eggs. Until one of them bites him. (laughs) <laughs> and then it's all ruined again. So, yeah. I don't know. Interesting. But yeah, I thought that scene was just so over the top of like how much Wilbur needs to prove that he's a man, not a woman, not 
doesn't want to be emasculated by this activity that he assumes is emasculating. Right. So and when he's convinced by Bernard and Bernard leaves, one of the bits of dialogue he has is he says, I got to be more assertive. No is no is no. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, it rubbed me the wrong way so much. Like it Mm -hmm. felt like it was making fun of women who would be in this situation in a consent issue Mm. where they've done something they didn't want to do and have to talk to themselves and be like, in the future, I have to be more assertive, Mm -hmm. make sure my no is heard. Like it felt like it was making fun of them while also at the same point using that to bolster a character that we're supposed to like. I agree. It was very off-putting. I love John Candy, but Ooh, a lot about Wilbur's character did not do it for me in this movie. Both the things he says and does and the things that happen to him, which we'll talk about. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Another moment that seemed maybe slightly homophobic was when Cody and all the animals are in McLeach's like, cage area and the koala is... Krebs is saying like you're gonna be a belt and you're gonna be a wallet and he says that Frank will be a lady's purse and there's something that is especially objectionable about that suggestion right yeah the fact that it's a lady's purse as opposed to something that might be predominantly worn or used by men like a wallet or a belt like, oh, at least when I die, I get to be a manly object. <laughs> right? What? what? <laughs> <laughs> this is a side note that doesn't really fit into this umbrella of misogyny, but something that Mick Leach says stood out to me, which is, I didn't make it all the way through third grade for nothing. Mm-hmm. That is obviously meant to be a humorous line because McLeach is actually very unintelligent. And I think there is some danger in conflating lack of education with a lack of intelligence, right? It's a very privileged perspective to promote. Mm. People have all sorts of levels of education for all sorts of reasons and often does not have to do with their innate intellectual capabilities. Also, not just poorly educated people commit crimes, but actually poorly educated people are more (laughs) likely to be arrested and convicted and treated poorly by our criminal justice system, right? Mm -hmm. Highly educated people commit a lot of crimes, a lot of very heinous crimes. So I think that conflation is probably thought to be harmless, and but I don't know that it is. Yeah, It reminded me of the depiction of Jasper and Horace in 101 Dalmatians. There's sort of these bumbling criminals. There's also like a classist element with their depiction in terms of the accents that they have. So just a little through line that I noticed here. Yeah. I think it's especially potentially harmful or insulting when there's no other representative of a criminal to like play off of. Mm -hmm. If you have McLeach standing in for all the criminals of the world and also all the people who got to the third grade at most, like kind of in a single person Mm -hmm. and there isn't a smart also terrible person Mm -hmm. who's part of this and doing the same things and like providing that point that would be like, okay, this is just us making fun of McLeach Mm -hmm. that like he isn't the brightest right versus the way that it reads onto all people who fit either of those two descriptions. Mm. And maybe Cruella is a little bit smarter. (laughs) So maybe that depiction is a little bit better, but they're not thinking about how it will be heard by anyone who shares an identity with McLeach. It's just for the people who are going to laugh at him because they have more of an education Mm -hmm. or they're a child who will have more of an education. Right, right. Well, you mentioned the racism that was happening during the making of the film. Did you have any thoughts about the depiction of race in the film itself? Just kind of like some quick things that are Worth noting, like, obviously, there's the lack of First Nations characters, Mm -hmm. cast members, and then expanding from that, any characters of color, 
right. playing any roles. <laughs> At least Jake is played by an Australian actor named Tristan Rogers, mm. but he lived in America, I think, by then. Red and Krebs, who are the kangaroo and the koala, are both played by British actors. All of these people are white men, mm. but like not even using a Australian voice cast, never mind a First Nations voice cast or any people of color from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a very, very white film. Mm -hmm. But I did want to give it the small, small piece of credit it deserves for having actual African countries in the Rescue Aid Society versus in the first film oh. where it's just a representative from all of Africa. Africa. <laughs> <laughs> So in this film, we get Ethiopia, Tunisia, Nigeria, and then Morocco. And the representative from there is named Frank. And he is greeted by name, hmm. as is another representative named Esmeralda, who walks by at the same time. And his name is Frank. I don't, I don't know how much of a Moroccan name <laughs> Frank might be. <laughs> but it also felt kind of forced because they picked the Moroccan character and Esmeralda, who I assume is from some uh, Eastern European country that maybe mm -hmm. didn't have great representation either to like say like the the chairman just says like, oh, hi, how you doing? Glad you're here. And then the meeting starts. Mm -hmm. So it felt like a little like they were intentionally trying to write to that wrong and maybe pushing it a little bit. But at the same time, they named him Frank. So right trying to push back in a way that was small enough and palatable enough to fly under the radar of the executives, maybe. But at least they acknowledged that Africa is a continent and not a country. <laughs> yeah, definitely a step in the right direction. <laughs> well, this discussion of racism flows well into the next point I wanted to bring up, which is actually related to conservation and animal rights. However, sort of couched in that discussion, I think is one of colonialism. Mm. Because as Davis, writing in 2014, points out, McLeach demonstrates, quote, notions of colonial entitlement and destruction of the landscape, end quote. So... McLeach is, uh, at least according to our read, a white man who mm. also does not have an Australian accent. He is blatantly taking advantage of the natural world, exploiting it mm -hmm. for his own capitalistic gain in a way that is very in line with colonialism. Yeah. Which, of course, Australia was subject to much of. Yep. And they still made everybody white. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, they're doing nothing to really interact with the native culture and even like the white Australians who live in Australia mm -hmm. and other Australians of color who come from all over the world. Right. You know, it goes back to what the actual animators said who were like, they tried to bring some culture to this film and mm -hmm. they were not allowed and they could only focus on the landscape and the animals. Those were the like beautiful, palatable bits that could be incorporated. There's definitely a conservationist message in this film. It reminded me a lot of Bambi and actually yeah. some of the scholarship notes that similarity as well. So Davis, again, wrote, quote, whereas McLeach exploits the environment around him, Cody protects it. It has a kind of environmentalist message, one specifically of animal conservation, which was very much an important one in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and fits with the American interests in the conservation of bald eagles and golden eagles within the United States, end quote. Mm -hmm. Marahute is a, a fictional bird. A lot of the eagles that they used were from American reserves and zoos and things, in particular the bald head is very clearly an American bald eagle look. Mm. There are eagles in Australia, but they are dark usually all the way down or like there's just a little white around the beak. Mm. So it is a very American vision of what this fictional bird would look like. So it's not even mm. protecting an Australian <laughs> bird. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, no, it's, it's America. It's the bald eagle. Right. If McLeach is representing colonialism, then Cody, as a white character, 
And again, a character with an American accent instead of an Australian accent, then kind of falls into this role of the savior, like similar to the idea of the white savior. Mm. There's a notion of the environmental savior. This is actually a, a documented phenomenon, specifically in wildlife film. But Winston wrote a thesis on this trope of the environmental savior in 2010 and I think highlights the similarities between the environmental savior and the white savior very well with this quote. This trope is justifiably condemned in its predominant form for casting a white Westerner as environmental savior in a foreign ecosystem. Critics charge this trope propagates underlying ideologies of racism, neo-imperialism, and Western superiority, end quote. Yeah, Western superiority, that one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, at the very beginning, Marahute is trapped and the kangaroo gets Cody to help because the kangaroo and the rest of the native animals can't possibly rescue Marahute themselves. They have to rely on this outside Westerner. Mm. And even on like a casting level, again, of like, you had the opportunity. You even had members of the crew who wanted to make this child like a native, a First Nations person, a native Australian doing the work on behalf of their environment. And Mm -hmm. then... Katzenberg and I'm sure others were like nope that's not what our viewers want to see let's basically make him a little American white boy Mm -hmm. poaching and the black market wildlife trade is a real issue I was a little curious about that like how exaggerated or not is the conflict around poaching that they depict with McLeach but Mm. an article I read in Australian Geographic and unfortunately it continues because there is a demand for wildlife. And actually, interestingly, it's not necessarily in the form of goods made from animal materials, but for live animals themselves. Mm. Yeah, Weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a, a brief moment of fat phobia. There was a brief just moment. Yeah. Acknowledge. You mentioned earlier that Wilbur says a lot of things <laughs> that don't always go off super well Mm -hmm. and one of those is when Wilbur is trying to take off to fly at one point Mm -hmm. he says I gotta go on a diet when I get home yep and it's a throwaway line it felt unnecessary for the smallest of chuckles right yeah that someone might someone else might chuckle I did not chuckle I wrote it down in my notebook (laughs) with anger (laughs) let the record show (laughs) (laughs) So the last thing that I wanted to talk about is the violence in this film. It was a little bit more pronounced than I think we've seen in previous films. Yeah, it was scary. Yeah. So there's this obvious child maltreatment in the kidnapping and detainment of Cody. He threatens Cody with violence repeatedly. He throws knives at him. He is wielding a gun in much of the movie, so weapons are featured pretty prominently. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also this violence of medical torture in the, (laughs) quote, comedic scene with Wilbur in the mouse hospital, which I honestly found the pretty disturbing yes like none of it registered as funny to me at all it was a lot and it definitely felt like a torture scene you're totally right Mm -hmm. and you know john candy as wilbur is playing it up as a torture scene and that's supposed to be funny and i was like i don't i genuinely don't know what these mice are trying to do to you like why are you here (laughs) well and i think that's what makes it so disturbing because it's not a misunderstanding right it's not like the doctor is actually trying to help him and wilbur is just misreading the situation Mm -hmm. or overreacting to a regular medical procedure it's like no like this doctor is clearly sadistic and trying to hurt him and he has this whole cadre of nurses who are helping him (laughs) terrifying yeah it was i didn't like it yeah (laughs) so there's a lot of 
violence in this film. And I, I suppose that is fitting given its action adventure label. But I think it's worth tracking the amount of violence in these films that are intended for children. What role the violence is playing? Is it important for character development? Is it important as a plot device? Or is it for something like humor? In which case, the message gets a little bit more muddled. If it's something that the villain is doing and is clearly construed as negative or harmful, then that feels responsible (laughs) in terms of filmmaking for children. But if you're depicting violence as humorous, then I think we're getting into some morally murky territory. Or even the like length of violence or Mm -hmm. talking about violence or how intense it is like mcleach is a bad guy Mm -hmm. and he is doing all the bad things and we're like obviously not supposed to do anything he does he's not very funny like Mm -hmm. there's nothing really likable about him but there can still be a point where like you hit your trauma level or whatever right and it is just too much it's unnecessary it's gratuitous that will be interesting to watch i think particularly gun violence and how like necessary it is for that character to have a gun in this story and how Mm. do they use it and whatnot i'm already thinking about gaston in the next film and Mm -hmm. how we'll talk about him (laughs) yes okay (laughs) i think it's time for aaron's extras aaron's extras (laughs) i got a couple here excellent going back to those details about glenn keenan Marahute. Obviously, Glenn Keane was Marahute's animator for this. He spent a ton of work on her. Apparently, they changed her anatomy, kind of, sort of, like the size mm. of the bird to make it easier to draw and to give themselves more, like, joints that they could manipulate. So mm. they enlarged the entire bird, obviously, because it's supposed to be fictional and giant. They shrank its head. They elongated its neck and wings and puffed out its chest. And Keen also had to slow the bird's wing movements from what's real and natural to about 25 to 30% Mm. of an eagle's flight speed so that they could, you know, not just have her flapping all of the time in all of the scenes and to to fit the mood of those, like, soft, beautiful flight sequences. The film at one point fell behind schedule, So Disney once again sent work to MGM Studios in Florida, which was supposed to be focusing on animated shorts. But that team ended up contributing 10 minutes to the film. Mm. On the act of watching the film itself, many critics were peeved at the fact that when it was released theatrically, there was a 10 minute intermission between the Prince and the Pauper short and the beginning of the main feature of the rescuers down under. Uh-huh. And it had there was like a countdown clock that appeared on wow. the screen. And it was just such an obvious like moment for you to go get more popcorn and like mm-hmm. spend some more money. And I don't know if Disney saw like some sort of revenue from that, but mm-hmm. it still pissed a lot of people off. Yeah. Joanna was voiced by Frank Welker who is best known for voicing Fred in the Scooby-Doo franchise starting in 1969. (laughs) (laughs) So those are the same person, folks. Wow. Weird. And then just worth noting that Eva Gabor died in 1995 Mm. and Rescuers Down Under was her final film, Mm. which is a weird thing to go out on. It is. Great job. Yes. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I'm very curious to hear what, grade you're going to assign based on when it came out in 1990 yeah Yeah. I mean as I said like not a lot of people went didn't seem very excited about it did not make enough money to earn back its budget at least domestically but critics didn't pan it right critics gave it that little bit of like it had some cool action sequences and the bird stuff was great Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I was on the F verge for a minute. And critics <laughs> critics brought me to a D. Wow. I gave it a D. Okay. Okay. Even with all of the animation wonders. Yeah. I'm sure Disney was very proud of it and maybe would feel differently. But like critics 
applauded it a little bit, but overall they were mm-hmm. like, okay, let's just move on. There's other better things to see. Right. So, yeah. Okay. What do you think modern audiences would give it? I will say a D plus. Okay. <laughs> because it's not good. But some of the animation (laughs) is very impressive and interesting. And it doesn't have as egregious sexism or racism as we've seen in many other films. All right. I think that is fair. Yeah. That's not going to do well on our our film grade spreadsheet. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, do you have a recommendation of something better our audiences should watch? I have a little something. If you are in a slump in the midwinter times, maybe a cozy mystery is what you need to lift your spirits. So you might check out Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, which is an Australian TV show. So... Something else from down under to um, to check out. Cool. I don't know what that is, so I'll have to look it up. Neat. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank goodness we made it through this. So now we can get to the good Beauty stuff. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Bonjour. Yay. Uh, <sighs> all right. Well, We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hellodeconstructingdisney at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at decondisney and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. 